The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Emmeline Pankhurst once said, Justice and judgment lie often a world apart. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what is the topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, is the hell of Christian tradition taught in the Bible? Part one. And our theme text is found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. For a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn unto the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. All right. Is the hell of Christian tradition taught in the Bible? It's called hellfire. For many centuries, the churches have taught that when sinners die, they face a punishment of eternal torment and torture. Reading some of the descriptions of how this intense and endless torture works, uh, they might make your skin crawl and your stomach turn. Yet, those who adhere to such teaching are firm in their belief, and that it, that it, their belief that it is thoroughly biblical and therefore entirely in line with God and his plan. And, and Jonathan, I want to pause here for a second, because those who believe and preach the doctrine of, of hellfire, and obviously we're, we're taking issue with it, and we'll explain that in a moment, but you have to admire their, their uh, dedication to what they believe in. And you may, we may disagree with the outcome of the belief, but let it be said clearly that we want to admire and, and, and look at uh, with respect the 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 uh, the passion that they put into into their belief, but the question is: Is that belief true? With respect, um, with so with that respect in place, I want to ask some honest questions. Could God have contrived such a diabolical and heinous place where screams of agony and relentless pain are the order of the day now and forever? What if this teaching is not from God, but rather from Satan? What if, by understanding well-established facts and by keeping Bible scriptures in context, it could be proven that what many churches have taught for centuries is one of the greatest misrepresentations of God that the world has ever seen? And again, Jonathan, this is our view. We realize that there are other views that look at this and take great, great um, uh, exception to what we're saying here. And Rick, it's true. We want to build this argument slowly and to make it watertight personally, but show respect in this conversation. And we do want it to be a conversation. So if you have comments, you can certainly go on the chat board or you can email us or you can get onto Facebook and we want to hear from you because this is important. And we want to have a dialogue about something that's hard to talk about. So Jonathan, here's the thing. History tends to repeat itself. Unless, of course, we decide to learn from it. All right, that's the big caveat. Today, we're going to lay out some history and primarily 
Old Testament scripture in an attempt to show the origins and pathway of the hellfire teaching that Christianity adopted. So we're going to focus on the Old Testament, and we're going to focus on history. But first, we're going to take a look, a very brief look, uh, drop in on Father Jay Karapi uh, in his YouTube uh, talk, Hell, the Teaching of the Church Affirms the Existence of Hell and its, and its Eternity. So let's just listen in for a few moments here. I have an obligation, you have an obligation, to teach and live the truth faithfully. Hell is part of reality. Because we don't like the concept, we can't cavalierly dismiss it and pretend that it's not a reality. It is a reality. The teaching of the church this is paragraph 1035 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a sure norm for teaching the faith, by the way, as the Holy Father says. Paragraph 1035, the teaching of the Church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Okay, now Jonathan, he said something there that I firmly agree with. He said, just because you don't like the teaching doesn't mean you can just cavalierly throw it away. I could not agree more with that. So what we are looking to do is not cavalierly do anything, but in fact, look at scriptures with reason, with logic, and with history. Slowly, like you said, slowly build a case to try to present what we believe the scriptures teach. Not tradition, not what I think, not what Jonathan thinks, but what the scriptures teach. So let's get back to the beginning, God's first command and consequence, uh, and we know, puts Adam in the garden, Adam sins, and there's a consequence. Let's go to Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And this comes from Young's literal translation. And Jehovah God layeth a charge on the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden eating thou dost eat, and of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou dost not eat of it. For in the day of thine eating of it, dying thou dost die. So the consequence for sin was you will begin to die and you will in fact die. That's what God said. Everybody reads that. Everybody sees that. That's the consequence. Let's go Correct. to Rome. Now this is going to be about the only New Testament scripture we're quoting really, but let's go to Romans 6.23 just to build on that. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, just as it said in Genesis, 4,000 years later, what God said is what he meant. The wages of sin is death. Now, obviously, those who believe in the doctrine, the teaching of hellfire, say, well, that death is that burning and so forth and so on. But that's not what we're seeing here. Okay, so let, let's kind of try to put, put this in place. Well, Rick, if God had an eternal torture plan in place for sinners, then why didn't he tell Adam? Because hell is a fate worse than death. You know, see, that, that's, that's an interesting observation right from the beginning. God would have been unjust and unloving to not warn Adam. Right. All he said was, you will die. Why is it that there was no explanation beyond that if there was a consequence beyond that? That's a first question to put out there. There's lots of others. Let's just put that question out there on the shelf. Now, Satan comes into the picture, 
and he says something to Eve that's a little bit different. Genesis verses, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So the serpent says to the woman, you won't die. Okay, so Satan directly contradicts God's consequence. That's right. God was pretty straightforward. Satan lies, and everybody knows this. Satan lies and says that death will not be a consequence. The lie of not dying has taken hold of mankind. A hell of torment, we believe. It is our respectful opinion that a hell of torment is a direct outgrowth of that lie. Hey, Rick, I've got a secret. And what's that? God was right. <laughs> well, you know, and... <laughs> okay. <laughs> but see, we that... Die. <laughs> you know, that's the point here, is what we want to do is we want to build a scriptural reasoning from the beginning forward. And why do we want to do that if Jesus came so many, you know, 4,000 years later? And the answer is because God built a foundation that Jesus looked back on and believed in. So if we can look back on and find the foundation that Jesus followed, we can therefore get a better understanding of Jesus' own teachings. So we're going to take our time going through this and build that foundation. So, Jonathan, there's going to be a lot of history in today's podcast. First quote is going to be from an article called The Hell of Ancient Egypt by John Watson. You can find it on touregypt.net. And just a couple of lines to get us started. The principal sources for our knowledge of the Egyptian concept of hell are the books of the netherworld, which are found inscribed on the walls of royal tombs of the New Kingdom in the Valley of the Kings at Thebes, and then later on papyrus with other funerary objects belonging to commoners. So what he's saying is history proves Egyptian belief in the netherworld. And it's shown because it's shown in pictures and it's shown in several different kinds of places. So ancient Egyptian history, we will see, again, looking at history, has a lot to do with understanding how this hell doctrine works or, or doesn't work, as the case may be. Let's go to another soundbite. This is from Duat, the ancient Egyptian underworld from experience in ancient Egypt. Again, this is from somebody who is a, a, an Egyptian scholar explaining a little bit of Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian belief system way, way, way back. The ancient Egyptian religion was not standardized, and the different texts that explain different beliefs and practices were not considered absolute. They mixed and changed. Some were evolutions of older ones, and some just went in and out of popularity. And so it was the same with the concept of the underworld. But for the sake of simplicity, let's take a look at the most prevalent belief about Duat. In ancient Egyptian cosmology, the earth was thought to be flat and oval-shaped and surrounded by oceans. Underneath it lay the vast expanse of the underworld with the primordial waters of noon running through it. Noon was the state of chaos that existed before creation. The landscape of Duat was similar to that of Earth's, but with a more malevolent flavor. There were trees and mountains and rivers, but also lakes of fire, dark caverns, evil spirits, and serpents. 
The papyrus of Ani has some very interesting depictions of it. And then she goes into explaining those. And it really is fascinating to see the, the, the belief system. But here's the thing, Jonathan, to take from that. The ancient Egyptian belief system had a lot of different variations, but the idea was that the earth was kind of oval-shaped, and then down beneath that oval shape was this nether world. And I'm going to keep coming back to that world as we, as we go through the podcast, the nether world, because it was below earth. And this is important because this was ancient Egyptian belief. This wasn't Jewish belief. This is ancient Egyptian belief. Now, interesting thing about these writings, Jonathan, what about the date and so forth of these? Well, Rick, uh, wasn't this in the 18th dynasty of Egypt, uh, oh. which began when Moses was a young man, right? Okay, so let's put it in perspective. So before Moses goes to take the children of Israel out of Egypt, these hieroglyphics, these writings were on the walls of tombs already. And that's right. important because you had a well-defined belief system with the netherworld shown plainly in the pictures. So think about this, okay? Think about this. Israel developed from a family to a nation in Egypt. Remember, when they went to Egypt, they were just a family with, you know, quite a household and servants and so forth and so on. They would have been familiar with Egyptian customs and beliefs what, because they spent hundreds of years in Egypt. Once God led them out after the plagues and by Moses' leadership, they were given for the first time a written law clearly establishing their allegiance to God only. Well, Rick, surely they must have brought customs and Egyptian influence with them. But Rick, how much did Israelites accept of the Egyptian beliefs? Do we, do we know? You know, I don't know that we know fully, but we do know this. They did build a golden calf. Oh, Good point. And it wasn't too long after they're out of the... Where did they get that idea? Not from God Almighty. No. Okay? No. So you know that they were given reference to these ancient Egyptian beliefs. You know that those beliefs were a part of the world in which they lived. Now, were they supposed to abide by them? No, but they were part of the world that surrounded them. This becomes relevant in our understanding of things. Because remember, the Egyptian thought process had a well-defined sort of underworld system already in place when Israel was still just a family and not even a nation, okay? So, so far, what we have is a lot of contradiction between God's ways and man's ideas. We do, and we need to keep it all straight. How did God specifically teach his people the truths of life and death when surrounded by paganism. We've been studying scripture and discussing how biblical history collides with world history in today's culture for 20 years on radio and in podcast channels. If you're curious about how the Bible or Christianity applies to what you have faced and are facing right now in your life, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Listen live or on your own time, then reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. You know, once the question is answered about how God taught his people about life and death and so forth, uh, it's going to give us real understanding of how to read scriptures on these issues. Let's start by remembering that God delivered Israel from Egypt through ten plagues. 
These plagues, interestingly enough, were directed at many of the gods of Egypt. It seems that God was showing his people that he was God, and these other things were just simply idolatry. They didn't belong. And it's a fascinating study, Jonathan. We're not going to go into it now, but there are several charts available. We might throw one into the Rewind uh, um, bonus material that show the gods of Egypt that correlated to each of those 10 plagues. Oh, interesting. And it seems like God is saying to them, your God, you're, you, you have a God you know, of frogs, essentially. Well, look at this. How's that, how's that feel? You know, so, you know, so, you know, you've got this, you've got this God combating the false gods of the nation that was holding Israel captive. Let's go back to uh, uh, Father Jay Karapi in Hell, the teaching of the Church affirms the existence of Hell uh, and its eternity. And again, he holds a very specific doctrine, have great respect for someone who speaks out on a doctrine that they believe in. Even if you disagree with the doctrine, you need to respect the conviction. So let's listen. Every now and then, some well-meaning theologian, as he gets older, comes up with the conclusion that hell isn't eternal, that God could never do that. This is doctrinal. There is a hell, and it's forever. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longed. So, you know, he, he represents those who may disagree as, you know, some well-meaning theologian as he gets older, you know, decides that something doesn't fit. And, and, and look, I get that, but honestly and truly, what we want to do is present thinking. We want to present history. We want to present scripture slowly, step by step by step. This is not, and, and Jonathan, look, this is not something you and I cooked up on our, on our own. Uh, no, not at all. No, we've been taught, and we've been, we've been taught how to study Scripture and, and look at history. And so, you know, we can't take credit for these things. We've been given the, the, um, the guidelines of how to study the Bible so it makes sense and, and to be able to put things in context. And that's why we've been talking about Scripture for 20 years, you know, on, on radio and, and podcasting, because we believe there's so much to it. So let's get to, go back to John Watson's article, The Hell of Ancient Egypt, uh, and just get a few more lines in what that hell of ancient Egypt actually taught. The concept of hell in the ancient Egyptian religion is very similar to those of our modern religions. Those who were judged unfavorably faced a very similar fate to our modern concept of hell, and perhaps even more specifically to the more middle age concept of it as a specific region beneath the earth. For the damned, the entire uncontrollable rage of the deity was directed against those who were condemned through their evils. They were tortured in every imaginable way and destroyed, thus being consigned to non-existence. They were deprived of their sense organs, were required to walk on their heads and eat their own excrement. They were buried in ovens and burned in ovens and cauldrons, and were forced to swim in their own blood, which Shesmu, the god of the wine press, squeezed out of them. 
So that is pretty graphic in terms of description. And yes. when you, you think about that, a lot of times you think of the Greek renderings of hell. This is ancient Egyptian renderings of the netherworld, of the world beneath the earth. And you think about the torment and the torture, and you see a common thread. But it was an ancient Egypt, not ancient Israel, that that thread existed, but in ancient Egypt. Jonathan, as a way to illustrate what happens to humankind over time, we want to, throughout the rest of the podcast, a quote stanzas from a poem. The poem is called The Calf Path. It's written by Samuel Walter Foss. And we're just going to give you the introduction to that poem. It's uh, read by one of our uh, CQ uh, volunteers. The Calf Path by Sam Walter Foss. One day through the primeval wood, a calf walked home as good calves should, but made a trail all bent askew, a crooked trail, as all calves do. Since then, three hundred years have fled, and I infer the calf is dead, but still he left behind his trail, and thereby hangs my moral tale. The trail was taken up next day by a lone dog that passed that way, and then a wise bellwether sheep pursued the trail o'er vale and steep, and drew the flock behind him too, as good bellwethers always do. What has that got to do with anything? <laughs> Just wait. Just the, the point is, this little calf walked crookedly and created a very crooked path that was followed by a dog, then it was followed by a bellwether sheep, which is sort of the, the designated leader of a sheep herd, and obviously brought the sheep with it along this winding, crooked path. That's what we know so far. That's where we'll leave it so far. We'll get back to it in, in just a few more minutes. And Jonathan, just before we go any further, uh, just a couple of comments. You know, we've gotten quite a few comments uh, from, uh, especially from Facebook on this topic as we've been getting ready for it. One comment actually came in uh, a couple of weeks ago from a young man, uh, young man, I think he's a young man, uh, named Joshua. And he says, I love your guy's show, discovered it last week. I was listening to all your different archives on hell. And one of them you mentioned, then he goes into some details. But it was interesting. He's very was very enthusiastic in communicating and was very, very upbeat and, and happy about Christian questions. Okay, I say that because uh, a lot of the other comments weren't upbeat and happy <laughs> about Christian questions. Okay, okay, some of them you know, were were very much the opposite. You know, when we're talking about this, um, somebody on Facebook said, "So this site, Christian Questions, is actually run by non-believers. So who runs it? Atheists, Muslims, what?" And you know, no, it's run by believers, but just believers of a different opinion because we believe scriptures tell us so that's the criteria and if we want to have a conversation that should be all of our criteria what do, I'm, am i willing to believe in what the scriptures teach we'll get to more comments and so forth as we go but back to egyptian thinking with the egyptian thinking in mind we've seen some graphic detail on it we go to the first scripture of the old testament that some interpret as a reference to hellfire the following scripture was written between maybe 1400 and 1500 BC, okay? And this is Moses writing, Deuteronomy 32, 21 to 23. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. All right, and if we pause there for a minute, um, this this. This scripture is quoted actually in Romans 10, 19 to 21, relating to the Gentiles coming to favor. That's because he says, I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. 
So you get a sense that, okay, that has a fulfillment a long time after Moses wrote it, but we can pinpoint it because the New Testament tells us oh, that's what it was talking about. So let, let's finish it because here is the, ne- the next part is where a lot, of, a lot of folks read this and say, aha, this must mean hell. For a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Okay, a fire is kindled because I'm angry. This is God, Moses speaking for God, and shall burn unto the lowest hell. And you say, well, that sounds pretty, pretty firm, pretty clear, shall burn unto the lowest hell. But what will that fire do? What does it say the fire is going to do? Well, Rick, it says it's going to consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Okay, and we're looking at this as a prophecy, as the previous words were a prophecy, and we understand that the foundations of the mountains, when you look at the mountains, they represent government, and the earth, the, 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 uh, the humanity. And when you read further in Deuteronomy, there is a great explanation of further what happens. But the thing is, Jonathan, there's no human torture under the earth mentioned here. It's pointing to something else. First of all, the word, it says, burn, the fire will burn unto the lowest hell. What is that specific word? Well, that Hebrew word is sheol, and it means underworld, grave, hell, or pit. Okay. And so you say, okay, it can mean, a, I mean, when you say it can mean hell or pit, that, those are two pretty different things. Okay, oh, that's true. So how do we figure this out? First of all, again, let's go back. The New Testament quoting of this text relates to the casting off of Israel. Because remember, the, G- the Gentiles come in because Jesus says your house is left unto you desolate. Yes. Okay, so therefore, it's pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem because that's the final destruction, the final act of casting Israel off of favor. And that's at 70 AD, right? Right. And now let's make sure that we we also say that God prophesied that Israel would come back to favor, and we believe they have. Just want to make sure that's understood. Okay, the nation of Israel, not spiritual, we're talking physical as well. But Sheol refers, uh, you know, you got to ask a question, does Sheol refer to this netherworld of pagan belief? No. No, no, it can't. Proof lies in the further context. Read further and you will see that the consequences of this fire are in this life not after you die they're in this life not after you die they're in this life and yes i'm repeating myself because i think that's so important okay another scripture that uses that same word and in the new american standard bible it's interesting because it doesn't even translate the word and you wonder why they wouldn't translate a word. And we'll get to that in a minute. Number 16, 31 to 33. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah and their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Now, if you look at the King James Version, it says they went down alive into the pit. And that's an accurate translation because the earth opened up, it cracked open, there was what standing in front of them? A pit, and they fell into the pit. They were alive when they fell in, it closed, and they died. Right. And, and that's what the scripture describes. So you have the scripture in Numbers talking about the rebellion of Korah, 
and how Moses separated the people and said, you have a chance, you can perish with Korah, or you can stand with me. And those that decided to stand with Korah, they died. They died. That's what it says. They perished. Look up the word perished. They perished from amongst, among the midst of the assembly. It doesn't tell you about any kind of torment or torture. It tells you about them falling into a pit and it crushing them. I'm sorry for being graphic, but it crushing them. That's what it was. The consequence was death. You got to ask yourself, this word Sheol, we saw it used, the fire is kindled in mine anger, you know, from the Deuteronomy scripture to the lowest pit, I would suggest. In other words, the, the deepest ravine, from the lowest ravine to the tops of the mountains, God is angry. That's the picture that he's showing us. Men fell into this pit. How about Job? He uses the same word in describing uh, uh, part of his own life, but he uses it in a very different way. Job 14, 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. So what is Job asking for? To go into the grave. He's saying, hide me. He's asking God, hide me in Sheol. Now, so are we going to say that he wants to be hid in hell? Because if you take the scripture in Deuteronomy and say, that's hellfire, the same word is used in Job describing where he's asking to go, to be hidden until, and he prophesies about the resurrection. You can't have it both ways. It's the same simple word. Job is asking to go there. So scripturally, what we see here is a clear-cut description. The word Sheol actually literally means to pit, a pit, you know, something that's covered over. And Job describes it, you know, cover me over. So, Jonathan, before we go further, and we're going to get into some more history now. Um, And it's interesting, Job's writings were actually before Moses. Most people don't realize that, but Job was very, very ancient. Another... um, Another idea that has come, came to us on, on Facebook that was not very complimentary toward our perspective. Uh, somebody said, the no hell idea is typically a Jehovah's Witness idea. For, and I won't read the rest of the, uh, uh, rest of the comment. And, you know, yeah. folks, this is, t- today is really a discussion in taking scriptures in context and understanding history. This is not a Jehovah's Witness idea. First of all, we're not Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's be no. clear on that, okay? But this is not a Jehovah's Witness idea. As a matter of fact, one of the primary sources we're going to use for history was a book written by Thomas B. Thayer. Thomas Thayer was a well-respected commentator on the Bible. Thayer's Bible Dictionary. Guess who wrote it? He wrote this book in 1881. Jehovah's Witnesses were founded in 1920-something or other, right? I guess. Right, I don't know. Right. I, don't, right. I really don't know. But the point is, he wrote this book, and he is a well-respected Bible commentator. It's called The Origin and History of the Doctrine of Endless Punishment. Look it up online. It is a fascinating book. We're going to read excerpts from that. So, Jonathan, just in his chapter in section one, Description of the Heathen Hell, we'll just read a few lines. Among the ancient pagans, the beliefs in hell of some sort was very general if not universal. It was known by various names as Orcus, Erebus, Tartarus, Infernus, or Inferna, which are expression infernal regions, uh, that is, the views current respecting it, were different at different periods and among different nations, 
according to the degree of civilization and the genuine of and the genius of the people. What I shall offer on this point will have respect mostly to Romans, Greeks, and Egyptians. Okay, so he's saying that many, 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 many ancient peoples had this belief in this underworld and so forth and so on. And he says, I'm going to focus on Romans, Greeks, and Egyptians. And again, the Egyptians are very, very ancient in this whole thing. Let's just take a look at what he says, what he says about the location, and it's going to verify what the ancient Egyptian culture said. It was located uh, supposedly to be as far below the earth or as deep down in it as the heavens are above it. Hesod, the Greek poet who lived at 850 B.C., and Rick, that was around the time of Elijah, is a very precise in his statement and says a mass of iron would be nine days falling from heaven to earth and nine more in falling from earth to hell, say also Apollo, Droas, or and Virgil, and others. Okay, so you've got this sense of Earth is in the middle, and heaven is above, and, it, and you know, they're they're kind of like planes. Heaven is above. You can dro- drop, and in uh, other translations says he drops an anvil nine days and goes from heaven and lands on earth. And then if you drop it nine days, it'll go from earth and go down to the netherworld. So the idea is it's way below earth. That's the, and that was 850 BC. That was around the time of Elijah. So history shows us many cultures thus far had this idea of hell in place, okay? And burning and torment and torture. So far, we have not seen any evidence from a scriptural standpoint. Okay, so summing up, what, what do we know so far, Jonathan? Well, Rick, God never warned Adam of sin leading to torment. The consequence was simply death. Okay, next. Egyptian culture before Moses' time clearly had graphic written descriptions of a netherworld. And again, it wasn't just Egyptian culture. What else? At its beginning, Jewish culture had no such thing. They only had death and burial underground in Sheol. Okay, and we can see that. We can see that through the book of Job, that one statement in Job. We can see that in the consequences that God was talking about and in the pit picture that we looked at as well. What else? And God vividly demonstrated the difference between himself and the gods of Egypt, especially in his deliverance of the plagues. This is a really important point. God demonstrates over and over again the difference between he and the heathen gods. We saw that in the deliverance from Egypt. He, he essentially mocked many of the gods of Egypt in those plagues. Well, Rick, the wisdom of God, and he never let things slide um, by applying his own authority right. on this is real power. Let me show you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. He's saying, you know, your gods say they can do this. Let me override that. Exactly. So who really is God? What's the next point? God never warned Israel of some future torture as a result of disobedience. He never said to them, after you die, you will be tormented ever. What else do we know so far? All of the penalties of God's law to Israel were... Uh, um tribulations kind of in this life right not not in the future right not not one word about hell fire was instructed or given to them okay so it's all about this life everything that israel every consequence look at the old testament that israel had to pay was always in this life or generations later but still in the life human life on earth not after life why is that 
there's something different between the history of the heathen nations and the history of Judaism. Carefully considering history and scripture together gives enormous enlightenment. It does, and the enlightenment needs to remain clear. Did God add to or change what he told Israel about life and death as time went on? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. Our last historical reference was to a Greek poet who lived around 850 BC. This moves us forward in time over 600 years from the previous references. While Israel did not have much to do with Greek culture, they were at that time, at the 850 BC, they were steeped in the mire of Canaanite culture and fighting what seemed to be a never-ending battle against idolatry. And Jonathan, this is a key to understanding biblical truth. What was Israel fighting against? How did God support them in that fight? Did they fall? Did they stand? What did the prophets say? What were the consequences? All of those things have to be the questions that we ask if you want to find biblical truth. And to just assume that you take a verse and says, wow, it looks like it talks about something. Aha, it must mean thus and so. Folks, let's not do that. Let's go slowly and build a case. Let's look at history and look at biblical truth. History and biblical truth, put the two next to each other, and you're going to see dramatic differences outside of Judaism and inside of Judaism. So before we get back to history, Jonathan, let's go back to the calf path. Remember the calf, you know, made that really crooked, windy path, and a dog followed it, then a, then a bellwether sheep led the flock down this, this very windy path. What's next? And from that day, o'er hill and glade, through those old woods, a path was made. And many men wound in and out, and dodged and turned and bent about, and uttered words of righteous wrath, because t'was such a crooked path. But still they followed, do not laugh, the first migrations of that calf. And through this winding woodway stalked, because he wobbled when he walked. This forest path became a lane that bent and turned and turned again. This crooked lane became a road where many a poor horse with his load toiled on beneath the burning sun and traveled some three miles in one. And thus, a century and a half, they trod the footsteps of that calf. So now the path has become a road, and it take, you got to go three miles to go really one. And now you've got the horses going around the bends and round the bends and round the bends because this calf put the path in place, and everybody just simply followed what was there. There is a profound lesson in terms of looking at what it is that we might believe and why we might believe it. How did it get there? Where did it arrive? So far, Jonathan, we have not seen hellfire arrive in the Old Testament. And now we're getting to the point of looking at the time of Elijah. Now, Elijah was about 850 BC, and he was there to have a standoff against the god Baal. So while the Greeks, Greeks were dro dropping iron anvils down into the netherworld, remember that last reading, Elijah was challenging the ascendancy of Baal in Israel at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel. So Jonathan, who was Baal? Well, Rick, according to the Canaanite mythology, Baal was the son of El, the chief god, and Asherah, the goddess of the sea. 
Baal was considered the most powerful of all gods, eclipsing El, who was seen rather weak and ineffective. In various battles, Baal defeated Yam, the god of the sea, and Mot, the god of death and the underworld. Baal's sister consorts with Ashtoreth, a fertility godless goddess associated with the stars, and Aneth, a goddess of love and war. The Canaanites worship Baal as the sun god and as the storm god. He is usually depicted holding a lightning bolt who defended enemies and produced crops. Defeated enemies and produced crops. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, so you've got Baal, uh, this powerful, powerful god, uh, the, the, a storm god, a sun god, depicted as holding a lightning bolt. Baal has overtaken Israel. How does God address the Baal issue in Elijah's time, Jonathan? Well, Rick, no rain for several year, years. Baal was a storm god, yet they had no rain showing Baal's weakness. That's right. He was a god who could bring storms. And they went, what, three and a half years or whatever it was without, without rain? any rain. Okay, so you think, huh, some god. <laughs> okay, why did God do that? You say, well, because that's what Baal stood for. What else? Rain only came again when Elijah said it would, showing God's ascendancy. Okay, the rain came exactly when Elijah said to Ahab, you better get moving because it's going to start raining. And literally, he said that. And then you could see the dark clouds coming. It was really quite dramatic. What else? This is interesting, Rick. God sent fire down from heaven to consume Elijah's sacrifice when Baal, the lightning bolt bearer, could do nothing, showing God's miraculous and unmatched power. So, and, and, and it's amazing to me to look at this and realize that what God would do when faced with paganism is he would essentially have a face-off with the other God. Now, it wasn't a fair face-off because these other gods aren't real, okay? Right, exactly. But God is proving to the people that they're not real. Baal, the bearer of the lightning bolt, God literally sends fire down from heaven, lightning bolt, and consumes a sacrifice that was just drenched in water. That gives you a sense of the ascendancy of God. God continued to address other gods by having his power in areas that they claimed power. So God showed Israel, and here's the thing, here's the lesson from this. He showed Israel that he was different than all of the other gods. Their belief system was different than all of the other people. And Jonathan, we believe that this belief in torment that was in all of these pagan worlds, Canaanites included, because they had an underworld there as well, Israel did not have. Back to uh, John um, Thomas Thayer, I'm sorry, uh, and section two of his book, the heathen invented the doctrine of endless punishment shown by their own confessions. So this is moving forward now another, this, this 150 years um, into the time of uh, Zoro, uh, Zoroaster. Aster. Yes, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> All the early lawgivers claimed to have had communications with the gods who aided them in the preparation of their codes. Zoroaster claimed to have received his law from a divine source. Leocurgus obtained his from Apollo, Minos of Crete from Jupiter, Numa of Rome from Egeria, Zaleucus from Minerva, etc. The objective of this sacred fraud was to impress the minds of the multitude with religious awe and command a more ready obedience on their part. So he is quoting a lot of pagan history and saying they claim to receive their, their, their beliefs from divine sources, and that would lull the people into submission because now they're afraid. Because when you have a God that holds a lightning bolt, you know, you think twice. Oh, for sure. Okay. So Fear. You know, 
Right, exactly. And, and that's the key. That was the key we will find to a lot of the pagan beliefs. It's simple. Fear drives obedience. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll say a lot more about that. So Zoroasterism was in the uh, Persian Empire in the 7th century BC, and he was actually at the time of Jeremiah. So we're going to look at Jeremiah in a minute. But here, Jonathan, one of the greatest tragedies of life is adopting the bad and even evil habits of others simply because they produce results. This is not a good idea. If it's a bad and evil habit, I don't care what kind of results it is, God says don't do that. Israel was an island that had one, that had one benevolent God, and they were surrounded by a restless sea of multi-God traditions and superstitions and sensation that whipped people into shape. God would continue to keep high and just standards. That's why he always said to them, be separate. That's why he gave them all those crazy laws. Separate yourself. Have nothing to do with the pagans. because Don't, all, don't intermarry with them. Right. All of what they believe in is wrong. It's off. It's off. It's just off. Just to balance it out, back to uh, Father Jay Karapi in the teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's speaking emphatically. He's a, a Catholic father. And, again, respectfully, we listen to him. We respectfully disagree. He is convicted. And, you know, that's the thing I appreciate about what he says. I don't agree with the content, but I, I admire the conviction in what he says. There is no absolute happiness and peace until we achieve our supernatural end, which is heaven. That's all there is to it. There is one reason we are placed on the face of the earth, heaven, beatitude, eternal salvation. But the bottom line is this, at the end, when it's over, we're going to go down any number of roads, but they're all going to converge on one or two roads. At the end of one road is the beautiful, merciful face of Christ. And at the end of the other road is the horrific face of Satan. And at either destination, you will hear these words, mine, all mine. Okay. So, I mean, he paints a picture. He believes in the picture. And I, and again, respect the idea that he believes in the picture. And, you know, Christians have a lot of different views on a lot of different things. You know, one of the comments from Facebook um, said, well, this group does not, uh, this one group does not speak for all Christians. They seem to be outside the circle. Now, not quite sure what circle he's talking about, but yeah, all Christians don't agree on the concept of hell and hellfire. And again, the reason that we don't is not because it's uncomfortable. Uh, look, it is uncomfortable, okay? I'm not going to run away from that. But that's not the reason, just because something's uncomfortable, it's not a reason to not believe it. The reason must be clear. It must be concise. It must be scriptural. It must be historical. And when you can put history and scripture together and build a case, yeah, I think you have to listen. And folks, if you think that we're missing the boat on putting history and scripture together, let us know. We'd be happy to reconsider based on history and scripture. And Rick, uh, the soundbite, when he ended it with mine, all mine, yeah. I, I can't imagine Jesus saying yeah, those I know, words. I know, I know, I know. From his loving heart. I know. It's, it, different. It, it, it's yeah, different. Yeah, I, I get you on that. You know, but Jonathan, you know, Zoroaster brought us to the time of the 7th century. That's approximately when Jeremiah was preaching. And next is a horrible but necessary example to prove 
to prove how different God was and is from pagan deities. This is a horrible example. I'm telling you right up front, but we need to talk about it because it is a foundational truth that gets misrepresented dramatically. Jeremiah 1, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 19, 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord, go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests. Then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. And I say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring calamity upon this place, at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle. So God is going to bring calamity. All right. Now, this is this is pretty dramatic language from God. Israel had again walked away from God and would now experience his wrath. What did they do and what was his wrath? Let's read verses four and five of uh, what was what chapter we in here? I forgot. Jeremiah 19. Sorry. Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. So Israel is inhumanly sacrificing their children to Baal and burning them alive and god oh, says that's awful and and god says i will bring calamity upon this place and this people because of what they're doing because this is heinous in my sight verse six therefore behold days are coming declares the lord when this place will no longer be called topheth or the valley of ben hinnom but rather the valley of slaughter all right, so why was it called Topheth to begin with during this time of this, these sacrifices, Jonathan? Uh, Gil has some good, good comments on this. As it hath been for the beating of drums in it, that the cries and shrieks of infants burnt in the fire might not be heard by their parents. So it was called Topheth to cover the sound of the torment of the children that they were slaughtering. Okay, now Nora would be called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. What, what's the history behind that? Which was its name in the times of Joshua, and long before it was called Topheth, but now it should have neither names. Okay, but it's now to be called the Valley of the Slaughter. Right, or of the slain, Rick, as the Targum, for the multitude of those that should be killed here at the siege and taking of Jerusalem by the army of the Chaldeans, or that should be brought hither, to be buried. So it and that was found in Jeremiah 19:11. So you have this burial place that yes. it, it becomes. It doesn't become a place to support life, it becomes no. a place to support death. Exactly. Uh, so God's calamity. God how, how how is God's deep anger expressed at those who mercilessly took innocent life for the sake of an idol? He prophesied their eventual downfall after the rejection of Jesus in guess again, AD 70. He he prophesied that and here's, I think, the pattern, Jonathan. God is saying, God is saying to Israel, when you defy my rules and you go toward idolatry, you will be punished. And if you can continue to do that, I will cast you off. 
And that's what AD 70 was. And interestingly, that's what he's prophesying here, verse 7. I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. And I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. So again, the calamity that God says is not afterlife. It's in this life. Now, it might be generations later, but it's still in this life. This is directly opposed to all of the pagan belief systems around them that said afterlife is when you get your, 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 your just desserts, so to speak. God doesn't ever say that in the Old Testament. We have to look at it scripturally. Why did God, what did God do and not do as a result of this particular really awful, awful sin? Well, Rick, God did bring them shame, and he marked the place of this sin as one to remember. Okay, he marked it specially because the sin was so disgusting. What else? And God did bring them the severity of punishment specifically stated in the context of this life. Okay, the context of this life. What else did he do? God did not even hint at any afterlife punishment at all, Rick. Folks, you have to realize that's the truth of the Scripture. Look at it. That's what it says. What else? God did, once again, maintain his ascendancy over heathen gods by never even considering what those gods were attributed to actually doing. You know, and, and, and Jonathan, this valley, of, uh, this valley of slaughter became the valley of the, the valley of the sons of, was the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And that what was, is what was called Gehenna in the New Testament. That's right. And those of our Christian friends who believe in the hellfire doctrine look at that, and when Jesus talks about Gehenna, they say that's the place where God's going to torment and torture people who, who, who sin. But wait a minute. That's the place where God said, no more, because you tormented and tortured people. So is it reasonable to assume that Jesus took a God-proclaimed symbol of utter destruction— and shame, and relabeled it a symbol of God-sanctioned torture when God himself he couldn't, said he would never do such a thing. Think logically by looking at the Old Testament, the basis. Jesus talked about the Valley of Hinnom because of the history. He talked about it because of what we just read in, um, in Jeremiah. Realize that history builds up the idea that God was not a God of eternal torment. So look, it is sad and sobering to lay such evil out so plainly. You're right, but the good news is, God is consistent in his character. Does the Old Testament really back that character up? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. You know, Jonathan, we often hear about those who see the Bible as a tale of two gods. And to a degree, can we can understand why. The Old Testament is far harsher with its accounts of wars and pestilences than the New. That being said, wouldn't you think that the message of hell's torment would be a, a front and center in the Old Testament warnings? The fact that it isn't should cause us to question the valid validity of that teaching. It is not there in the Old Testament. And folks, you know, you can say, well, I know, but Jesus hadn't come yet. So he left his people in the darkness then for all of that time. Didn't tell them the truth about things. Is that what we're saying? 
Is that a logical thing to assume from God Almighty? Well, Rick, I've never looked at the history in quite this way. And I think this is really unique to see the thread of the Old Testament and the different time frames to help us really understand what Israel, God's people, were going through. I think this is fascinating. It is, because it shows you what's on the outside and what God is showing them on the inside. And whenever those worlds collide, it shows you how God deals with that collision. And that dealing with that collision, always the consequences were in this life. Always, without exception. So you're right, it's a fascinating view. So let's take a look at a few more Old Testament scriptures that could potentially, by those of our Christian friends who believe in, in, in hell and hellfire, uh, get stretched into, to fit into hellfire's teachings. Go ahead. But first, we want to look at the calf path again. Oh, right. Let's go back to the calf path. I got so excited I forgot. But got to go back to the poem. It's going to help calm me down. So let's listen. The years passed on in swiftness fleet, the road became a village street. And this, before men were aware, a city's crowded thoroughfare. And soon the central street was this, of a renowned metropolis. And men two centuries and a half trod in the footsteps of that calf. Each day a hundred thousand rout followed this zigzag calf about. And o'er his crooked journey went the traffic of a continent. A hundred thousand men were led by one calf nearly three centuries dead. They followed still his crooked way and lost one hundred years a day. For thus such reverence is lent to well-established precedent. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's a delightful story that tells a profound lesson. Now you have this metropolis that's built around this windy, windy, senseless path that was put in place by that calf. And you look at that and say, well, how, how could they? Because it was there and because it was convenient and because those before did it. That's how. Interesting, interesting story. So, Jonathan, now we'll get to a few more Old Testament scriptures that could potentially, we believe, get stretched to fit into the hellfire doctrine. And, and look, let, let us say this also before we get into these scriptures. Yes, we believe in hell because hell is the grave. So when you say, well, they don't believe in hell and it's taught in the Bible and I can quote you the word hell. Of course! But what we believe is hell does not mean what you think it means because the scriptures don't support that meaning. Why do we say that with conviction? Because scriptural history tells us and secular history shows us the differences. Isaiah 34, verses 8 through 10. For Jehovah hath a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So that sounds pretty disastrous, doesn't it? It does. It's another prophecy. This time it's pointed to the future day of judgment. Now look, notice how the imagery has nothing to do with another world, with that world that's way beneath that collects souls for torment. Rather, it has to do with a specific time set aside for a specific judgment. Remember, uh, Father Kapari's uh, thinking was, the minute you die, you go into hell and you, and you suffer. Okay, that's what he said. Okay, this is directly contradictory to that because it's saying there will come half a day of vengeance. 
It's a day future. There's a specific time and a specific judgment. There's no hellfire here, and this is an earthly picture. So, Jonathan, it's interesting because those proponents of, of the hellfire uh, teaching also quote a scripture from Revelation that actually quotes this. And it says, the smoke therefore shall, of their torment shall go up forever and ever. That's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah is showing it to be an earthly, an earthly destruction. So think about this when you read that. In other words, Jonathan, you can't take an end result without figuring out how it got there. You can understand the Revelation scripture more clearly by understanding its source in Isaiah 34. Let's go to another Isaiah scripture, Isaiah 66, 22 to 24. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure, and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Okay, so obviously this is a future time. The new heavens and the new earth. We all know about that future time. It's not eternal happening regularly. So here, here is, now here's where the, 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 the dark side of the picture comes up in verses, uh, oh, verse 24. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So Jonathan, in this description, are these men suffering in that fire? Rick, there's no torment or torture. It says they're corpses. They're not alive. So Isaiah is giving an apt description. So when you read the scriptures in the New Testament where Jesus says about where the worms don't die and, and the fire's not quenched, he's quoting Isaiah. Destruction. Exactly. He's quoting Isaiah. This is specific and therefore dynamic. It gives us a strength of understanding. We need to put the scriptures in their context. So when you read those words by Jesus and say, well, what about this? The answer is, go back to where he quoted from. He's not changing the meaning. He's just reinforming us of the meaning in a, in a bigger way. Okay, Isaiah 38, 17 goes the opposite direction in terms of the idea of, of quote, afterlife. Isaiah 38, 17 to 19. Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins before your back, behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells a son about your faithfulness. Okay, so now in Isaiah 38, now obviously this is before Isaiah 66, but you know, Isaiah is talking about, you kept me from the, my soul, my life from the pit of nothingness. And there is an apt description of what God said to Adam. In the day that you eat of this fruit, from the Young's literal translation, dying you shall die. Rick, this is a reference to its silence. Right, right. The wages of sin of, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You don't get a sense of anything else in between. 
And again, there's no room in these Isaiah scriptures, the first two, even though they have some graphic pictures, they are very clear about those pictures being on this earth in the context of human life on earth, not afterlife below the earth or anything like that. Take the scriptures in their context. We owe it to ourselves, if we call ourselves Christians, to take the scriptures in their context. So, so Jonathan, the Old Testament covered the history of mankind from creation to 400 years before Christ. That's about 4,000 years in terms of span of time. In those 4,000 years of the Old Testament of Bible history, the idea of a burning hell is simply never addressed. The New Testament covers less than 100 years of history. Rick, I have a question. Is yeah. it a reasonable uh, to assume that God would withhold such an important eternal truth from his creation for 4,000 years? See, Jonathan, from the standpoint of understanding Scripture, that's one of those questions that I think we have to be able to put on the table and, and, and boldly look at. Would God have withheld the true consequence of sin from Adam, from uh, Noah, from Moses, from Elijah, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from, from Malachi, from all of the prophets? Would he have withheld the truth? The fact is that what God said to all of them is, especially once Israel is established as a nation, when you sin against me, the consequences of that sin will be acted out in human life. There were times when he said the sin will not come to its fruition to the third or fourth generation. That's right. But it's still in this life on this earth, right? Absolutely. Look, folks, I challenge you, look at the scriptures, look at the Old Testament, and realize that God worked it out in the context of this human life. Whether it be generations later, it's still on earth as humans. The history that is behind the paganism tells a totally different story. Totally different. You go back to ancient Egyptians, you go back to ancient Greeks, and to many, many, many other cultures, and it's all after death. Then things happen, and we say, well, look, there's the Day of Judgment. And you're right. There is a Day of Judgment. Different story for a different time, but the consequences of sin are for Israel were supposed to be in this life. Now let's go back to the origin and history of the doctrine of endless punishment by Thomas Thayer, uh, chapter four. And Jonathan, we're going to now focus on a really important period of time, and this period of time has no biblical history because it's the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If we understand what happened during this period of time, it really helps with our understanding. So a few lines from Thomas Thayer uh, in his book. It is allowed on all hands that the Jews in our Savior's time believed the doctrine of future endless punishment, that it was a part of the common faith. Of course, as the doctrine is nowhere to be found in their scripture, the question arises, where did they find it? At the close of the Old Testament scriptures, they did not believe it. At the beginning of the New, they did. Okay, so he makes a really interesting uh, uh, comment there. And, and the first time I read this years and years and years and years ago, I was like, what? They believed that? 
And then when you begin to look into the New Testament, you can see traces of it. It's really, really fascinating. So what we're going to do next is take a look at that 400 years where there's no Scripture. And Jonathan, again, if we look at the principles of Scripture, we can predict what's going to happen. Okay, as we round out this particular segment, we can predict what's going to happen because you look, you look back and you see every time Israel went toward idolatry, God would stand up against the idolatry, against the God of the idolatry, would show his ascendancy, and they would be punished. Now, sometimes the punishments didn't come for generations, and sometimes they came right away, but it was always in this life. But the key is they kept falling off of godliness. That's human nature, Rick. It is. We forget so quickly. Right. And when there's 400 years with no word from God, from a prophet, you can see that there's going to be forgetting. So, so when we look at all of this, the New Testament is pretty buttoned up on this hell thing, isn't it? It is. And that brings one more critical question. What condition did the 400 years of prophetic silence before the New Testament leave Israel in? Every episode, we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com, through all our social media channels, and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together. This period of time that we're talking about ends up being incredibly important when we examine the growth of the Hellfire Doctrine. We have already seen that teaching to be prevalent and widespread outside of Jewish thinking, and we have seen God's countermeasures whenever it got close. The problem is, whenever there is no prophet in the land, like you said, Jonathan, the people tend to get lazy, they tend to forget, and they tend to get drawn away from God. And that is exactly what happens in this particular period of time. So let's go back to uh, the calf path for our, our last go-round for the lesson on what it's teaching us. A moral lesson this might teach, were I ordained and called to preach. For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. They keep the path a sacred groove along which all their lives they move. But how the wise old wood gods laugh who saw the first primeval calf. Ah, many things this tale might teach, but I am not ordained to preach. Very well said. You know, the idea is we get stuck and we get into tradition, and then that tradition brings us uh, to, to a conclusion, and then we find out that the tradition started sort of midway, and there was more to the story. You know, one of the comments uh, from, from one individual on Facebook was, no hell? Well, that's a lie from Satan himself. Well, okay, and I can understand how you, how you, you would say that and believe that, but my question to you is, have you ever looked at the history the pagan history, and lined it up and scrutinized it against Old Testament history and saw the dramatic, stark differences. The fact is that in those 4,000 years, God is silent while all the pagan nations seem to know everything about eternal torment. 
How could that be possible? These are God's chosen people. How could that be so? Then that individual also asked, what denomination is the group that oversees Christian questions? And we are non-denominational, okay? So there's the answer to that. We are non-denominational, and what we try to do is adhere closely and carefully to the Word of God with nothing else. We use study helps to help us understand the Word of God, but it's about God's Word, nothing more, nothing less. We use history to compare it to, and we follow the Word as best as we can. Are we perfect? Nope. (laughs) Do we make mistakes? Yep. (laughs) But we're trying really hard to be scriptural and honest with that scriptural viewpoint. So Jonathan, now um, we're going to go to the book of Malachi. This is the last book before that 400 years of silence. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Okay. The third verse from the end of the Old Testament says, Remember the law of Moses. Remember everything about the law of Moses. Don't forget the law, the statutes, or the ordinances. And he's kind of saying there's going to be a quiet time of silence. You've got to hold on to what you already know. And again, what they already knew, Jonathan, didn't teach them about hell. Okay. Now, just just, uh, before we um, go to the history in that period of time, a couple of comments. from from Facebook, or actually, no, this is from the, the chat board, uh, and this was Joshua, the, the gentleman we spoke, spoke about earlier. He says, I was reading in Second Peter 2 and verse 4, he says, God threw the angels that rebelled into hell. Um, so he's asking Tartarus, what does that mean? It's a good question, not going to answer it today. Part 2, we can cover that, because part 2 is going to be focused on the New Testament. But great question, we're going to hang on to it, come back to it, Joshua. And then he says, also, I was wondering about the furnace that the tares... Uh, among the wheat will be thrown into. Uh, Is this the same as the judgment of God? And it's interesting that in that, again, New Testament, but it's a furnace of fire. It has nothing to do with the idea of hellfire. And when you look at the pictures of a furnace of fire in Scripture, it is a picture of the judgment day. If you look back at Hosea, he uses that phrase. And and, and and Jesus borrows from it. Jesus was great at quoting the Old Testament. And it shows us we need to know the old to understand the new. One other comment from Facebook, Jonathan, before we get into this, just want to, um, says, why does Christ refer so much to hell then? In the gospel, it's mentioned far more times than heaven. Struggle with the concept of predestination and election, but I accept it as truth. Jesus did not talk about hell more than he talked about heaven. Let's, uh, let's, let's look up the phrase, kingdom of heaven, and see how many times Jesus spoke about that. How many different times, how many parables he said, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. He prayed, uh, he, he talked to the disciples the night before he died. I go to prepare a place for you. He talked about heaven. He talked about heaven incessantly in all of his, the kingdom of heaven is among you. you know, so his references to hell, where we have to separate them into categories because all, all of what he was referring to were not exactly the same thing. Again, next podcast, we'll deal with that question much more in much more detail, but want to throw those out on the table. And folks, if you have more, if you say, look, I don't like what you're doing, I don't agree with what you're saying, send us your scriptures, send us your reasons, and if we get enough of them, Jonathan, we'll do a part three, okay? And we'll, that we'll, sounds good. We'll focus that part three entirely on what you, our listeners, say, ah, don't think so, Rick. Jonathan, you're all washed up. What about this? What about that? We'll take it word for word as long as it's respectful, and we'll consider it. I mean, we want biblical 
truth. All of that being said, Jonathan, let's get back to our study here. Malachi gives us warning. Back to uh, Thayer's book, uh, chapter 4, is the Jews borrow the doctrine from the heathen, and this is just giving us some clear-cut history of what happened in that period of time. Between these two points of time, there was an interval of some 400 years during which there was no prophet in Israel. Malachi was the last of the Hebrew prophets, and from him to Christ there stretched this waste period of four centuries when the Jews were without any divine teacher or revelation from heaven. And all this while they were in constant and close intercourse with the heathen, especially the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans, who held the doctrine in review as part of the national faith. For these, therefore, they must have borrowed it, for it's certainly that they could not have obtained it from any inspired source, since none of this was opened during this period. Okay, so during this time, we can note the great detail with which the hellfire teaching was explained. And it's interesting that at this time, the details of what happened and the thinking behind it actually became more uh, more viable, more known, because, you know, you had, you, you had the... Um, the Greek culture really rising strong at this time, and in the Greek culture, they were very, very big on education and thinking and philosophy. And so we're going to go through a couple of one, two, three, three different um, Greek individuals during this period of time, after Malachi and before Jesus, to give us a sense of, well, what was going on? What was the thinking? What was the teaching? What were some of the teachings of the time? So the first individual we want to look at, his name is Polybius. Okay, he lived from 200 B.C. to 118 B.C. He was a Greek historian from the Hellenistic period, um, had noted works in several different areas. And here's what he says about the reason for the hellfire teachings. Listen closely to what he says. Since the multitude is ever fickle, full of lawless desires, irrational passions, and violence, there is no other way to keep them in order but by the fear and terror of the invisible world, on which account our ancestors seem to me to have acted judiciously when they contrived to bring into the popular belief these notions of the gods and of the infernal regions. So he, as a historian, is saying... Yeah, our fathers were pretty smart. They acted judiciously because they contrived to bring into belief these notions of the gods and the, the infernal regions so they could keep that ever-fickle crowd in order. That's insulting, first of all. <laughs> yes. But it's very revealing. It's very revealing. Okay, so that happens in that period, that 400-year period in between. That's what's written. That's a historical perspective. The last chapter from the last book of the Old Testament, again, we read Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, but let's read the whole last chapter. It's all of six verses, so there's not a whole lot more to go. So let's go to Malachi uh, chapter 4. Let's do verses 1, uh, actually just verse 1 at this point, and notice the graphic warning. And actually, and I had forgotten that it was in Malachi, but um, the comment, the question from uh, Joshua about the furnace of fire. Take note, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So it's clearly the day of 
the, the, the judgment day is coming, burning like a furnace. That picture language Jesus picks up on and uses. Why? Because he quotes the Old Testament. Why? Because he believes the Old Testament. And that's another thing, Jonathan. The Old Testament did not teach the idea of hellfire anywhere. No. Did Jesus believe the Old Testament? Of course he did. <laughs> he what, fulfilled it. <laughs> what does that tell you? We've got to think this through. We have to think this through. So that's a, a graphic illustration to begin with. A future day of judgment using a furnace of fire, not the underworld, but a furnace of fire, again, at a specific time, not continually over and over and over again forever, but a specific time. The day is coming. Not the underworld, okay? Once again, God delivers judgment within a time frame and not for eternity. Folks, look at the scriptures and realize that's a simple scriptural concept that's easily provable by just reading through them again and again and again. Okay, another individual, Virgil. Uh, his real name is Publius Virgilius Maro. And try to say that. I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> uh, 70 BC to 19 BC, he's usually called Virgil. Uh, he was an ancient Roman poet from the Augustan period. He's known for three major works of Latin literature and so forth. And here he weighs in uh, as an ancient Roman poet. Now, again, you say a poet, not a historian. Okay, but, you know, they, they try to, to show their history and their, their belief and so forth through poetry. And if you don't believe me, think about Dante's Inferno, which came much, much later. He was also a poet. Okay, so let's, let's, let's understand. But here's what he says in relation to punishments. Of the punishments, Virgil gives us a brief account of these in the book already quoted from Aenid. And now, wild shoots Shouts. and wit. I'm sorry. And now wild shouts and wailings dire and shrieking infants swell the dreadful choir. And he says, and I'll, I'll read this one, Jonathan. Virgil says also, here sits in bloody robes the fury fell by night and day to watch the gates of hell. Here you begin terrific groans to hear and sounding lashes rise upon the ear. On every side the damned their fetters grate and curse mid clanking chains their wretched fate. I mean, he's just painting this picture that is horrifying. It, it is, is absolutely horrifying. Back to Malachi. You know, it's so nice to go back to the scriptures when <laughs> yes. you read something like that. Malachi chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So now more symbols. You had the furnace of fire. That's a symbol. How do you know that's a symbol? Well, in verse 2, he says, But you, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, son, S-U-N of righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings. Well, that's Jesus, obviously, Rick. Well, of course it is. And see, folks, that's what we have to understand. The scriptures explain themselves if we look at them and we put them in the context in which they belong, that furnace of fire is a day coming of dark, dark trouble. The sun of righteousness is the glorious, warming, healing sun. The sun of God, literally, with healing in his wings, will release from such a day. So this is another symbol of Jesus. Uh, and, and really what this is saying at the end of Malachi is right will inevitably win this battle. 
So, Yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Father Jay Karafi, one more time, Jonathan, just because, again, he, he presents himself, and I, and, I, and I know I sound like a broken record, but I want it to be really clear. You, we must respect those with whom we disagree, especially if they are convicted by what they believe in. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to pat them on the back and say, hey, way to go, keep going. But you look at that and you say, look, I, I admire the passion. I admire the conviction. I would just love to see you saying something different. But it, it's okay to admire the passion and conviction of others. And folks, if you do want to send in material to us and you want to take issue with what we're saying, please do. Just do it with respect. And we promise to give you the same respect because it's so important to be able to, hey, here's an idea. Let's talk about something we disagree about. I know that's hard to fathom, but it can be done if we really try hard. Let's listen one last time. God is a merciful savior. Satan is the master terrorist from, from whence all horrors come. One of two roads, all roads, 10,000 times of 10,000 roads, they all lead to one or two roads. Heaven, hell, and it's your choice. Now that may sound like old time preaching, and it is, but it is old time truth. And it has not changed since the beginning. That's the way it is. The affirmations of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and magisterial teaching are 100% certain on these very, very simple matters of faith. There is judgment, there is purgatory, there is heaven, and there is hell. So, Jonathan, I, I will um, take issue with, uh, well, there's several things, but one thing in particular, you know, he said, and this may sound like old-time preaching, and it is. I submit to you, folks, we submit to you, that the old-time preaching didn't have a word of torment and torture in it. That's what we submit. So what we're saying, and this will be covered in part two of our, 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 our two-part series, possibly three-part series if we get enough responses from you on it, but in part two, we will go and look at what the original church fathers really said about the matter and see what old-time preaching really is. Jonathan, the next example is just before John the Baptist and Jesus will appear on the scene. This is from Strabo. Uh, he is a Greek um, geographer and philosopher and historian, uh, 64 B.C. to 24 A.D. The multitude are restrained from vice by the punishments the gods are said to inflict upon offenders and by those terrors and threatenings which certainly dreadful words and monstrous forms imprint upon their minds. For it is impossible to govern the crowd of women and all common rabble by philosophical reasoning and led them to piety, holiness, and virtue. But this must be done by superstition or the fear of the gods by means of fables and wonders for the thunder, the agus, the trident, the torches of the furies, the dragons, etc. are all fables, as it also is at ancient theology. 
these things the legislators used as scarecrows to terrify the childish multitude. So there you have it. Seems hard to believe that Israel could, Israel could swallow such heresy. Just look around you now and ask yourself, how much anti-biblical morality do you accept as normal and, and excusable without even thinking? We say they shouldn't have accepted it. Well, what are we doing? Okay. Then going back to Thayer's book, just to wrap up a few more lines. The process is easily understood about 330 years before Christ, Alexander the Great had subjected to his rule the whole of Western Asia, including Judea, and also the Kingdom of Egypt. Soon after, he founded Alexandria, which speedily became a great commercial metropolis and drew into itself a large multitude of Jews who were always eager to improve the opportunities of traffic and trade. And a few years later, Ptolemy Soter took Jerusalem and carried off 100,000 of them into Egypt. Here, of course, they were in daily contact with the Egyptians and Greeks and gradually became, um, began to adopt their philosophical and religious opinions or to mortify their own in harmony with them. So you see how it all happened. Finally, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So there you have a look at all of the things that are happening before the New Testament begins and in that in-between period. And obviously, a lot of things fell apart. History has repeated itself. Just as in the time of Elijah, when the people of Israel were embracing the heinous rituals of Baal worship, so too, when John the Baptist was to come on the scene, the people were again embracing the heinous rituals of pagan mythology. And folks, we believe that's what's happened to a lot of Christianity as well today. We'll cover more in part two. And again, if you have thoughts and you say, no, this is wrong, let us know. We really do want to hear what you have to say. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, it's about understanding Scripture. It's about being honest about the integrity of Scripture and the honesty of looking at history. Put them together and you can see a pretty clear story that Hellfire is not from the Bible. Till next week, think about it. And folks, remember, we love hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you thought about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. Make sure to download our app. Search Christian Questions in your app store. Meanwhile, we look forward to you and a new podcast next week. And our subject next week, are Christian, as a Christian, should you just be yourself?